Okay, in review, what we did is we, we were looking at, uh, so we're looking at the chronological life of Jesus, and we are today going to focus in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, and uh, let, me, let me speak in review because this is probably one of the biggest turning points, the biggest turning point in the, uh, in the Gospels. And, and uh, so I'll summarize what we discussed last time. Now, now, what we're starting with here is a very long day. This is sometimes called the busy day. It's a very long day in the Bible. This portion that we cover, that we talked about last time that I spoke here, and uh, we will cover, be covering for months, and this is all one day that occurs in the Bible. On the same day, this occurred on the same day. So the same day that the unpardonable sin occurred, remember the, the thing that led up to this was he had healed a man who uh, was, was deaf and dumb, couldn't speak, and yet he had a demon. And, and it was taught to them, that uh, uh, it was taught to the Jews that only Messiah would be able to heal a man who was demon-possessed, who was also unable to speak. And that's because the method of Jewish exorcism was to cast out demons by calling upon their name and, and finding out what their name was. But if the man was dumb, they couldn't do that. Jesus normally didn't cast out using that method. He normally cast out demons just by casting them out. He never had conversations with them. Uh, we will see, though, on this same day, later on in the day, he casts out uh, a demon from a Gadarene demoniac, a Gentile, and he uses the method of Jewish exorcism where he asks the name of the demon that's within the man. And so from this account to the, the, the account that we will get to in a couple of months where he casts out a demon from, from a Gentile, this, this demon, uh, his name is Legion, for he was many, that this is all one day. So this is the longest account we have of a single day in the Gospel. And you see how much he does in a single day. And that's why at the end of John's Gospel, he's able to say, John is able to say, if we had a full account of everything that Jesus did, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. It's because this was probably a typical day, and we have from, from morning until night of a typical day of all the works that Jesus did, and all the things that he said, and all these parables that he's going to go through. All of this is all one day. But because uh, uh, he did this messianic miracle, and they had to come up, the Pharisees, either they were going to come and accept him as Messiah, or they were going to reject him. But if they were going to reject him because the Pharisees had taught what Messiah would do, and Messiah, they said the only Messiah would be able to heal a man with leprosy who was a Jew, and he, Jesus already did that. They had taught the second thing that the Messiah would be able to do, only Messiah would be able to do is cast out a demon from a man who was dumb, a man who couldn't speak, and a man who was mute, and, and uh, Jesus did that. And so rather than receiving him, the Pharisees said, as we had talked about last time, they said, he does this by the power of Satan because he's Lord, uh, because, by the power of Beelzebul, Beelzebul being the, the head of the, the, the demonic gods of theirs, and uh, being Lord of the Flies, because they, they call them Beelzebul, rather than, uh, and, and uh, in, in Hebrew, Be Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies, is actually what they called it. 
And so, because they denied this the second time, and also said Jesus did this by the power of Satan, he casts upon them the unpardonable sin. So what is an unpardonable sin? It is a sin that is unpardonable. It is the third time that, that uh, a judgment was cast upon the Jewish nation. Not the first time, but the third time. So the first time it was cast upon the Jewish nation was is Kadesh Barnea. They came out of Egypt. They went to the Promised Land. Kadesh Barnea is this oasis just on the entrance into the Promised Land. Uh, Moses sent in 12 spies. The 12 spies come back and they said the land is everything God said it was. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. There's no question about that. Everything that the land that God said it was. However, ten, only two of the spies said, let's go in and take it. God is with us. That was Joshua and Caleb. Ten of the spies said, no, we can't take it because we're militarily not strong enough. Those people are well entrenched. They're big people. We're small people. And we can't take that land. And there was a huge uprising, and those two men, Joshua and Caleb, almost died in the uprising. So God put upon them an unpardonable sin. Uh, it called it an un- unpardonable sin in the sense that he put upon them a curse that you will wander in the wilderness 40 years. Everybody from 20 years old and upward will die, will not enter that land. Only people younger than 20 who, who survive this 40-year period will en- enter that land. Except for Joshua and Caleb, they'll go in. It says that the people repented in, in, in Exodus. It says that they repented. And they even tried to go in, and God wouldn't let them in. God, in fact, had them killed as they tried to go in. They had to wander 40 years. They, well, they repented. Why didn't God just forgive and let them in? Because when he proclaims something over a nation that is unpardonable, guess what? It's unpardonable. And, and even though they repented, there was individual salvation for those who repented, but as a nation, they couldn't go in. The second time was with the wicked king Manasseh. had a very long reign. You know, sometimes you, th- you think, well, why do wicked people have such long reigns? Why doesn't God just cut them short? Well, I don't know why. God uh, gave Manasseh a long reign, a very wicked king. Blood flowed in Jerusalem and in the temple area. He turned, in the, temple, he turned the temple to something full of idols. In, in, and this is talked about in the book of Kings and Chronicles in particular. And uh, Manasseh, it says, at the end of his life, God says, you, enough. There's going to be judgment on this nation. You're going to be taken to Babylon for 70 years. And that can't change. Manasseh repents. It says Manasseh repented. Manasseh asked forgiveness of God. And it says God forgave him. Just as it says God forgave the people in, in, in uh, the book of Exodus. God forgave Manasseh. Individually was saved. But the judgment upon the nation was still going to occur. He said, I'm not going to do it in Josiah's day, Manasseh's grandson, because Josiah was so good. But as soon as Josiah died, the, the, uh, the, the, exodus, the exodus had to occur, meaning the deportation to, uh, to Babylon. Um, now, this was the third time. This was the third time it occurred. This couldn't change. Forty years later, the judgment upon Jerusalem and the temple was going to occur. That couldn't change. So the Romans were going to destroy the entire Temple Mount. That city of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. That couldn't change. Individuals we know could be saved out of it because it was a judgment upon a generation. And we'll hear this underlying theme again and again. Jesus will speak about this generation, this generation, this generation. The things that came upon that particular generation. 
things that would come upon them. So that's the summary. And now remember, this is not something, an unpardonable sin is not something that anybody else can have. We know Jesus has died for us. Anything that we do, we can be forgiven for. Any man comes to God, repents, there's the blood of Christ to forgive us. This was a sin upon a nation. It was a sin that was cast upon a nation, unpardonable, because the Messiah was physically present, and they physically denied him on the basis of his being demon-possessed. Remember, the Jewish literature, both in the Bible, the Jews, the Pharisees, never claimed that Jesus didn't do the works and the miracles that he did. You couldn't not proclaim this, that he did this, because there were too many eyewitnesses. So what they had to do is they had to attribute it to something other than God, and so they attributed this particular act of his to Satan, saying that he does this by the father of all lies, Satan himself. So they attributed it. So the unpardonable sin is when Jesus was physically present to a nation, and he was displaying himself as Messiah, and they claimed that he did this by the power of Satan himself. That brought upon them the unpardonable sin. That can never happen again because Jesus is not physically present proclaiming himself as Messiah to any particular nation anymore. And so he does that and now he withdraws from them the blessing that they could have had. And we will see a total shift in character. The way Jesus addresses the Pharisees, remember he went to Simon the Pharisee's house and he had dinner at his house, and he talks with Simon the Pharisee and says, you know, this woman, she's washing my feet with her hair. You didn't even kiss me or wash wash my feet when I came in. Uh, And so he had these conversations. Now he's going to speak about them very differently. You'll see his whole tone for the rest of his ministry. We're only about a year and a half, not quite a year and a half into his ministry in the chronological life of Jesus. Now you see a real change. There's other things that are going to to happen in this change that we'll begin to cover. So, let's pick it up in Matthew, chapter 12, verse 30. And he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy may be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. This was the proclamation upon that generation. Now look in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give account account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So this is an interesting passage. He says in verse 33, he says, either the tree is going to be good or bad. Then look what he says to the Pharisees now, in verse 34, you brood of vipers. Look, his whole attitude, the way he is speaking to them, is changing. You brood of vipers. This cannot be taken as being flattering. This is what he says to them. Imagine the Son of God. Imagine a prophet. Imagine a teacher. Imagine a great miracle worker 
calling one a brood of vipers. Calling a group a brood of vipers. This is huge. This is a huge thing to call them a brood of vipers. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Look at how the mouth speaks. He says, your heart, I can tell what's in your heart based on what comes out of your mouth. This is what Jesus said. I can tell what's in the heart of a man based on what comes out of his mouth. You know, a few weeks ago, Shannon was speaking in the service about the heart and the testimony of what comes out of the heart. And I jotted these things down and I've added a few to them, but it's really quite amazing how much you can tell about a man's heart, how much you can tell about what's in a man's heart based on the words that will come out. What are the things that we can tell based on the words that would come out? So you can tell this about the heart. If there's a harsh tongue, it means that inside that person is an angry heart. A harsh tongue has an angry heart. A negative tongue. You know, people are always speaking negative things. Oh, that can't work. That can't work. And, you know, I hate to be around negative tongues because I, I want to think we're going to do this, we're going to accomplish it. And when people tell me, oh, no, you can't do that, oh, and they're doing this all the time, I hate to even be around those folks. A negative tongue is, is indicative of a fearful heart, one who's fearful. A gossiping tongue is an unsettled heart. A boasting tongue is an insecure heart. So when one is boasting, it's really because of insecurity. That I feel as if I have to tell everybody about how grand I am. Well, it's only because of insecurity that I have to do this. A boasting tongue is an insecure heart. You see how the tongue, Jesus said, reveals what's in my heart. A filthy tongue is an impure heart. A critical tongue is a bitter heart. The folks who are always critical, it's a bitter heart. There's a bitter heart in there. A lying tongue is a wayward heart. Now, a gracious tongue is a loving heart. A gracious tongue. A complimentary tongue is a content heart. C.S. Lewis gets at this. A, 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 a complimentary tongue is a, is a content heart. He says that we are to rejoice in others' successes. This means that I am to be as happy when others receive things as I would be if I were to receive it. And so when, I, when my colleagues win awards, I write them a letter and I send it to them. I say, I am so happy for you that you have won this award. I'm so proud to have you as my colleague. We are to share the other's joy. So a complimentary heart is a content heart. Am I content enough? Because the opposite of that is, Ugh, I wish I'd have won that. I'm better qualified than that person. You see the difference. A complimentary heart is a content heart. What's in here comes out of here. What's in my heart comes out of my mouth. I can tell something about a person by what comes out of their mouth. A praising tongue 
is a thankful heart. A praising tongue is a thankful heart. The heart reveals is revealed by the tongue. Jesus said this. Isn't that amazing? This is really quite profound. You can tell something about people. You can tell something about your boss. You can tell something about your colleague. You can tell something about your spouse, your potential spouse, by what comes out of their mouth. As you are thinking about who you might marry, watch what comes out of their mouth. That will reveal to you what's really in their heart. Watch what comes out of their mouth in different situations, in stressful situations. Watch what comes out of their mouth. Listen. Listen to that. That's revealing of what's in the heart. That's revealing of what's in the heart. That's why my, you know, Shireen's heart is is revealed by what comes out of her mouth. She's always speaking good stuff. Even when I come home grumbling and things about people, I mean, she's always speaking good things about people. Her heart is just like that. What comes out of the mouth is a revelation of that which is in the heart. Jesus said that. So he says, he says the, in verse 35, The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, the evil man out of his evil treasure what's evil. Then he says, every careless word that people speak, in verse 36, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Who could ever get through that? Well, let me tell you something. As believers in Christ, guess what? We don't go through the white throne judgment. How wonderful is that? He looks at Jesus. Jesus has paid the price. And we don't even go through the white throne judgment. That is wonderful. That's how we get through that. Because of the blood of Jesus, we don't go through the white throne judgment. Now, there is judgment on this earth, according to our words. By your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. The fruit of a man's mouth brings either life or death, it says in the book of Proverbs. By the, the things that we say. You know, sometimes I can see people destroy their careers with a few sentences. Just destroy it. A few wrong sentences to important people and they're fired. Just, that's it. A few wrong sentences to a few important people and they never get a promotion. That's all it takes is a few wrong sentences. An extension of that is email. And I'm not picking on anybody except myself. I know this from myself. Email is an extension of my mouth. It's not like a letter that I write that that I can pull back before I go and mail it. I mean, email, you hit that button, it is gone. And it can happen so quickly. And the same anger that can rise up in me where I want to say something, I can feel at the keyboard sometimes. And I can feel my ears starting to get smoking hot. And, and, And my poor keyboard is just being slammed as I'm typing away at this thing. This affects careers. Sometimes I'll read emails that people write and I'm thinking, what are you doing? 
You know, you're never going to be chosen for a position of responsibility after this email. And unlike words, it's not things that people might, you know, kind of forget or he didn't really say that. I mean, email you can keep going back and looking at. And then with a touch of a button, you can forward it to a gazillion people and it becomes viral. I mean, it's, it's much worse than words. And, and everything goes out there. And in my generation, nothing was recorded because nobody had video recorders. There was no such thing when I was young. I remember when they first came out for the general public, big things you put on your shoulder and you did a video recording. Somebody video recorded about 15 seconds of my wedding, 30 years ago of our wedding, about 15 seconds worth. It was on a spool, reel-to-reel, and everybody's kind of moving fast because the timing's off. That's all there was. So you didn't have to worry about things. Now, wherever you go, people are holding up recording instruments and just getting every word, and then it goes up on YouTube, and these things are recorded. God had a recording of everything, but now it's recorded all over. And as, as you have probably been taught, when you watch what you put on your Facebook page, because that's where employers go. That's where the Department of Chemistry at Rice goes when graduate students apply to Rice. They go to Facebook and they look, what's this person like? Because people reveal this and think that, that uh, this is somehow secure. It's not secure. So be careful what you post. People do that. And, and, and sometimes, I, I, just recently, um, there was this woman and she was, you know, she's just saying, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on with my job. I don't know. That, nobody's hiring me. I apply and it looks like, I mean, then I don't get hired like five jobs straight. Well, I popped onto her Facebook page. I don't have, you know, anybody can look at the cover page. And I looked at her picture. And I'm thinking, that doesn't look like the woman that I know, but if she's going to post that, you know, with her hair this way and her sunglasses, and I mean, it, I wouldn't want to hire her. I mean, this is revealing even just the little bit that I can see there. I wouldn't want to hire her. So any, anyway, these things are dangerous. In this life, we'll get through the white throne judgment, but, you know, we need to be concerned about this life, too. This is why we, Lord, get a hold of my tongue. I go into meetings sometimes, and I know it's going to be a hot meeting, and I, I pray this prayer. It's, uh, that, that, uh, it, it says, do not, the scriptures say, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And I will pray this prayer. This is, this is right from the scriptures. I'll pray this prayer. Lord, bind this around my neck and write it on the tablet of my heart. Lord, keep me from losing my cool in this meeting. Lord, protect me. I don't want to say things that I will regret. Now, the other thing that we should learn how to exercise is learning to ask forgiveness. I have said things all the time and I continue to do it. And you would think that at my age I would have learned. But I haven't. And I learned how to go back and ask people to forgive me. Forgive me for what I said. Forgive me for that sharp email. That came across in a way that never should have come across. Forgive me for that. That does a tremendous amount. It really does. To learn how to ask forgiveness. Because generally, the world does not do that. And so that when we as believers do it, it's really 
calls us out. It really stands out, and people are like, wow, yeah, don't worry about it. To learn how to ask forgiveness is a blessed thing. Because even if the Lord were to get tremendous control over our hearts, and hence over our tongues, still there will be times of slip-up. And to learn how to ask forgiveness of individuals who we have offended. And even if we feel that, well, you know, they kind of deserve that. Well, if we have overstepped our bounds, ask forgiveness for what we did. That is a great thing to be able to do. All right, let's look in Matthew chapter chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to them but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here he is proclaiming judgment upon that generation. That's what Jesus is doing. And so all of a sudden the, the, the Pharisees try to you know, calm down this thing, calm down this guy who's just called us a brood of vipers. And remember, the, these scribes and Pharisees are surrounded by their, this, you know, the people they teach. And Jesus just called them a brood of vipers. And so they're trying to get control of this situation because Jesus has radically changed. We read in Mark the last time I taught how his family thought he had lost his mind in this situation and they tried to call him back. They tried to, to pull him back. This is all on the same day. They thought he lost his mind in this situation. How can you call the Pharisees the brood of vipers? I mean, they'll kill you. I mean, these, these, these folks are in control. And so the, the Pharisees try to get control of the situation. And they say, show us a sign. <laughs> try to change the subject here. Show us a sign. I mean, Jesus has been showing them all sorts of signs. And his signs were there to show, to, to be a demonstration of his Messiahship. That's what his signs were for. And he would go out preaching. John started proclaiming it. Jesus came, started doing works and wonders that were proclaiming his Messiahship. And then it says even his disciples were going from city to city. So even his disciples we had read had already been sent out, proclaiming that the Messiah was coming. Jesus' works were there to proclaim His Messiahship. There was no faith necessary for healing or anything. Remember the man by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus heals him, and they say, who healed you? He says, I don't even know who healed me. They just walked up and healed me. The man didn't have any faith. Any faith in what? Jesus healed people as a demonstration of His Messiahship. Faith was totally unnecessary. After, after this unpardonable sin, faith was an absolute for healing. You want healing, you had to have faith. Things were different among the Gentiles, but among the, the, uh, uh, the Jews at this point, they had to have faith for healing. It was no longer a demonstration of his Messiahship. It was for instruction. We'll go over this. He specifically says it. It was for instruction of the Twelve, for the instruction of the Apostles. That's why he was healing. And he was healing individuals based on their physical need. It was no longer as a proclamation of his Messiahship. You say, well, why not? Because his Messiahship was already proclaimed. They made the decision not to receive it. 
They said that he only healed based on his being filled with the demon. In fact, because he had Satan himself, the ruler of the demons within him, Beelzebub, within him. That's how he was able to do it. Their decision was made, the proclamation came, and that was it. So there was no more opportunities for them. He wasn't doing any signs for them anymore. But he says, I'll only give you one more sign. I'm not going to stand here and do any more signs. You're only going to see one more sign, and that's the sign of Jonah, the prophet. As Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be. And he gives them that sign. First of all, he gives them that sign in Lazarus. Lazarus he will call forth from the dead. And this, this is idiomatic when he says three days and three nights. Three days and three nights. There are examples in the Old Testament, for example, Esther. where one, When one said a day and a night, it means any part of a day. You say, well, that doesn't match up with our Western philosophy. Guess what? Our Western philosophy wasn't what Jesus was dealing with at the time. When you say a day and a night, it meant any part of a day. Just like you could be 20 years old and 10 months, right? Say you're 20 years and 10 months old. And I ask you, how old are you? You say 20 years old. Oh, you liar. How can that be? You're, you're, you're almost 21. Well, you know, this is kind of our culture allows this. For a year, I, I'm allowed to say that I'm, I'm 20. Their culture allowed, this was idiomatic, a day and a night. And this is why Jesus was definitely crucified on a Friday. He was in the grave on Saturday. He touched Sunday morning and he comes alive. That was three days. Sometimes it's referred to as three days and three nights. You touch a day, it's a part of a day. The same patterns you see throughout the scriptures. So, so um, this, he, say, he says that Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster. He says, I'll, that's the last sign you're going to see. That's the only sign that I'm going give to give to you. He demonstrates that in Lazarus. He demonstrates it with himself. The third demonstration of it is going to be with the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. And it's discussed in Matthew that it's going to come upon that generation, that, that future generation in Matthew 24 and 25 that he talks about. And then he talks about the two witnesses in Revelation, that they will rise from the dead. And at that third demonstration of the rising from the dead after three days, the two witnesses, the entire nation of Israel will come to the Lord, it says. That's in a future generation, not to this generation. The judgment is going to come in 70 AD to this generation. It's the only sign you're going to see. I'm not doing any more signs for you, he told them. That's it. So they interrupt him trying to get control of this situation. And guess what Jesus does? He says, I'm just going to give you this sign. That's all you're going to see. And he gets right back to the condemning of them. So they, they interrupted him and he goes right back at them. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And, be, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So, look what he does. He gives us a glimpse of what the white throne judgment is going to be like. If you're in Christ, you're not going to have to go through this. But you can see what's going to be happening. He says that at the white throne judgment, people who receive the testimony of God are going to be there condemning those who didn't receive it. Who had been offered plenty of chance. And what he says is, this generation, this generation, you see that, that he keeps talking about this sort of thing. They will stand up in verse 41. 
stand up with this generation. In verse 42, they will rise up with this generation. She will rise up with this generation. This generation, when that, those people come before the great white throne judgment, the men of Nineveh, who responded to the preaching of Jonah the prophet and repented, they received much less light than this generation had received. They will be there condemning them. These are Gentiles. Nineveh was Gentile area. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, came to hear Solomon. She responded to the light that was spoken to her. A Gentile. Something much greater than Solomon is here. She responded just to a little bit of light. You've had so much light. You didn't respond. She will be there condemning you at the white throne judgment. I mean, this is a glimpse of what's going to take place. Jesus knows this because He knows He lives outside of space and time in the sense that He knows everything. Verse 43, Now when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Again, he applies this little story to that generation. That generation. He says that, that it is like when an unclean spirit goes into a man... And it, this unclean spirit was not cast out. Look, very specifically, was not cast out. Of his own volition, the spirit left. Looked around, didn't find a better place, went back to the original place, but brought seven buddies with him. The last state of the man was worse than the first. So, when it was swept clean, unless it was occupied by a new spirit, that old spirit is coming back. It, has to, it was cleaned and swept, but it has to be occupied by the new spirit. He says, John the Baptist came preaching to this generation. It was prepared. It was swept. You've not received it. Your future state's going to be worse than your former. And this is what it's going to be to that generation. Here they are living under Roman rule, but they still had a level of autonomy. They still had their own government through the Sanhedrin. They could still run their lives. They still had a functioning temple. In 70 AD, the Romans say, enough. And they come in and they destroy the temple. They destroy the Sanhedrin. They kill everyone that is left in Jerusalem. Everyone dies. And it was a nation turned against itself. So the very same things that they accused Jesus of. Jesus said, how can one nation be turned against itself? If Satan's kingdom is turned against itself, it could never stand. That's exactly what happened in Jerusalem in the end. And so they, they were ultimately killed. But you see, this judgment has now been cast. And now what we're going to also see is we're going to see changes in relationships. We're going to see changes in the way Jesus speaks, in the way he teaches. And we're going to go over this. And only as we study this in the chronological order of the life of Jesus does any of this make sense. Or else you look on one day and it... And, and, and faith is not necessary, and the next day it is, and the next day it isn't, and the next day it is, because three of the Gospels are not written in chronological order. Only the Gospel of Luke is written in chronological order. So we use that as our template, and then we take from the other Gospels and fill in all these pieces as to where they respond within the Gospel according to Luke, so that now it makes sense. 
Why this big change in the way he's teaching? Why this big change in the way he addresses the, the Pharisees? Why is this happening? You can see, because this is it. And a question came to me, so what is the third thing that the, that the, the uh, Pharisees were teaching that only Messiah would be able to do? What is the third thing? So the first was healing, healing a uh, uh, Jewish leper. From the time the law was complete, never had a Jewish leper been healed until the time of Jesus, until Jesus did that. The second was, was casting out a demon from a man who was dumb. And the third was healing a man of blindness who had been born blind. And that, that will occur later on. Jesus demonstrated that third one. Now, all of these things that I'm telling you that the Pharisees were teaching the Jews at that day, all of this is still in the Talmud. It's still in the Jewish literature. You can read it today. They condemn Jesus, and you can read it in the Talmud. It says because he practiced sorcery, because he practiced demon, uh, demonic spirits, and it even says that's why we, he, he had to be crucified on the Passover, which is very unusual. But that's what they attributed to. And they said that it says that he was able to do these works because he was practicing the demonic. And so, what I'm telling you is that what was written is still exists today. You can read that today in the Talmud. So, we, we're going to understand the pattern in the life of Jesus and why different things took place. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for what you have given to us in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the, the truth that's come forth in the life of Jesus. Father, I pray for these young people, that you would so get a hold of their hearts that out of their hearts would flow good things and that would be a reflection on the things that they say. And Father, I pray that you'd give them great perception so that as they see, as they see cruelty and and, uh, unkindness coming forth and negativity and criticality coming forth from their mouth, that it would be a check on their hearts that they'd be able to come back to you and say, Father, forgive me. Change my heart. Father, I pray for these young people that you would so have this impact and this effect on their lives. Father, I pray for your blessings to be upon them, the great blessings of God, in the name of Jesus. Amen.